This chapter opens what my Bible will state is the second section of the letter to the Corinthians. Disorder in the church. And it's nothing new. It's been going on since churches began 2,000 years ago. And Paul opens with a very specific reprimand against a member of the church. He says, a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. And it's clear that some members of the Corinthian church are possibly seeing um, his like free sexual lifestyle as something to celebrate and Paul is outraged. To read chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 and think what strikes you about Paul's advice to the church? Do we agree with his judgment? Do we think he's being too harsh? Remember Paul is seeking to ensure the church congregation remains united and filled with love and selfless service and even if all parties in this like kind of like liaison consented it is setting a damaging precedent that marriage and sexual relationships can bend and bow to whatever we want and this is very very unpopular for ancient greece and parts of rome and i would assume it's quite unpopular in our culture nowadays um, and paul and myself by proxy are not condemning non-believers for their relationships but he is coming down hard on those in the church body who are doing this. And it's clear, if we read this passage, that either the husband of the woman who's named only as the stepmother doesn't know about the affair, which means it's a betrayal, or he has no respect for their marriage in the first place, which is really bad. And it's also clear that the man who Paul is coming down upon, who is sleeping with his stepmother, is flagrantly disobeying God's law and civil ethical practices having no respect for his father or the sanctity of marriage and what it represents. And I kind of got to thinking, perhaps we put ourselves in his shoes. Maybe it felt right, or maybe they had permission, or maybe they would say it's not hurting anybody. And as some of us may know, affairs, whether they're allowed or not, they're not free from harm. Somebody's always hurt. And the church body can't tolerate something like this. And so Paul says that this man, and he's clearly laying blame at the feet of the adulterer, and not the woman or her husband, must be thrown out of the congregation. And the words used are, handed over to Satan. And a quick word on this particular phrase. He says, handed over to Satan so that his body will be destroyed and he himself will be saved. And this is quite a complicated passage and our modern culture will probably not understand it as it is meant. We would read this and possibly see it as uh, send him to hell to be tortured. Is that what he means? Or give his soul to the devil forever. Is that what he means? But this is this is misunderstanding scripture through our modern interpretation of what we see as in hell and devil and Satan. This man to given over to Satan to ensure his soul is saved. And that's not what we would expect to read. And before we carry on, Paul isn't saying that if you are handed over to Satan, your soul is saved. He's not saying that, you know, you belong to that, you're saved. But it's likely what he means is either he means ban him from the church body and therefore the church community for a time. Now, we would normally call this excommunication nowadays. And it's also likely that Paul might be thinking of Job when he commands this man to go over to Satan. Send this man away from the kingdom of Christ with its spiritual love and protection. Send him back into the world and into the world with all that that brings. And as we know, if we've read Job, God allows this character, the Satan, to test Job with physical 
maladies and worldly tragedy. And ultimately what happens is that Job learns to know and see God in a far more wonderful and incredible way than that that can simply be explained by man. And Job learns through his suffering in physical and earthly ways at the hand of the Satan, he learns about God and he, he has a more profound and intimate knowledge of God. And it's, for, and it's possible that what Paul means is when this man is outside of the love of the church and in the clutches of the world, perhaps he will realise his sin, genuinely repent and genuinely then see God anew and his soul will be safe. And note, as always, Paul is far less concerned about people's physical health and physical well-being than their spiritual health and their spiritual well-being. And my translation says... This man's sinful nature will be, be destroyed, but other translations actually say his body will be destroyed. And but Paul says, you know, but his soul is saved. Paul believes that's a good thing. And so the question on reading this passage is, will we as a congregation unite to, to combat sin? Will we boldly but with compassion and love challenge believers we know to be living in sin for their benefit and the church as a whole? And this is only five verses in, so it's quite a lot here. Read verses 9 to 13. So like we said earlier, Paul is not saying that non-believers who have, you know, say, liberal sexual habits should not be associated with. Because as he says, you would have to leave the world for that. He understands that, although not, that it's not an ideal, if people we know don't have Christ, it is not for us to judge or hold them to a Christian standard. He's really tough, though, and very serious on, the quote is, people who claim to be believers yet indulge in sexual sin, greed, idol worship, abuse, um, drunkenness, and cheat people. He says, don't even eat with such people. Don't even develop friendships with these people. Because remember, Paul desires the church to be united. That's what the whole of this letter is about, is answering questions to make sure everybody is on one mind. And if the people in our church, especially people who teach are greedy, cheaters, idolaters, etc., then then they will deceive and destroy people, especially new and young believers. And this carries on to me giving this podcast and anybody who has any kind of authority to teach this. If we aren't, you know, haven't got our hearts and minds in order, we will end up deceiving people. And remember, a lot of people come to Christ in vulnerability. And when you're vulnerable, you will be easily persuaded about things. And if you're being taught by people who are living in sin without repentance, you might end up finding that you're not being taught who Jesus really is. You don't really know Jesus. I'm not saying you. I'm saying you. I'm not singling anyone out. And in, in my dad's old church, um, a worship leader was living with his girlfriend, and they asked him to stop or step down because of the example, because he was the worship leader, not because he was in the church, but because he had a leadership position in the church. And them asking him to step down caused massive, massive division in the church because some of the longer standing members who knew this person and they kind of liked him a lot, they became angry at their leadership because they were being too, inverted commas, judgmental, too harsh. And this guy didn't repent, he didn't change his life. He basically just took his musical skills, went to another church, and, as I saw it, sold his way in. And this has happened 
not not it's not 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 just in worship leaders, but I've seen at least three times in my life through churches I've been at someone with a position of prominence living in a way that is not good, be challenged of it, not repent, and then basically just pack their bags, leave and go to another church and keep peddling the same thing. There's no repentance there, there's just clever words and it leads to division. Now Paul would have none of this. He would tell the church, unite together, throw the person out. Sorry, in my head that whole section got a little heated. And, but you have to remember when we're reading this letter that Paul knows that not one person, one person alone is not more important than the unity of the church. And if they think they are, they don't belong there. And then, then we kind of come into chapter 6 concerning lawsuits. Now, I've not come across any lawsuits between a Christian and another Christian, but I do imagine there have been some. So take a couple of minutes, read 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 8 and ask yourself, why do you think Paul says that? What stands out to you and what challenges you? And remember, again, this is not a chapter to only be read on its own. It all comes alongside the rest of the letter. It's all concerning division and unity. Why should believers not go to secular courts? Paul says it's because that is taking the conversation away from the church and into non-believing territory. If we settle arguments with the world's ways, we are on a quick, slippery path to the world's ways. Ambition, selfishness, looking to win rather than looking to be reunited with the other believer we are angry with. If we use the world to judge the church, we bring the standards and nature of the world onto Christ. Now, that's not discussing secular legal problems. I don't think Paul is saying not to use legal courts if the problem is outside the church in the business matter, or especially if it's not something like domestic abuse. But he is aggressively making the case that the church must settle its internal problems internally so that the church can be reconciled into a united body of believers. Now, I am not for a moment supporting the way the Catholic Church has internally sorted out their child abuse problems. And I th because the problem with that was that it was a cover-up. There was no repentance. There was no accepting the blame and actually having dealing with the consequences. It was a cover-up. And I believe that if Paul is really harsh about infidelity in the church, he would be positively murderous about child abuse in the church. And in verse 2, Paul says, can't you decide these little things among you? He's talking about little squabbles. Little squabbles that can lead to legal problems. He's not talking about murder or rape or child abuse. He's talking about the petty, selfish things that divide us, you know, on a daily basis. And obviously, we move on. The next few verses are, of course, infamous. <laughs> Read 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 to 11. And just ask, does any of that challenge you? Do you disagree? Do you agree? Does any of it upset you? And there's no getting around these verses. Paul is clear that indulging in sexual sin and continually doing it, those people will not inherit God's kingdom. And no, it's not those who have sexually sinned and repent. He's talking about the indulgence of it, that, that you live with it, that you think it is absolutely fine all the time. And the same goes for his use of warning against male prostitutes and homosexuality. 
Because in Corinth, male prostitutes were used in temples to satisfy the temple patrons. It was very much linked to the worship of Apollo and other gods, and of course constituted idolatry as well as using another person. Now, that doesn't exactly hold sway today, um, but we do need to be aware that as Christians we are challenged and we are called to put aside our own desires for the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean we don't ever get to have things for ourselves or enjoy things in life, but it does present us with a huge challenge and a hard one to face when it comes to relationships. Are we pursuing relationships for our own pleasure? Are we after heterosexual or homosexual relationships because we want it, and therefore it is our right, which is the culture we live in, now, Paul addresses sex later on and encourages believers, as we might know, who are burning with desire to get married. And that's not a popular answer for today's culture. And some of you might be annoyed that I said that. But remember, he isn't condemning people outside the church, but inside the church. Because inside the church, we are set apart. We are called to be different. We are called away from the world. And he wants the church to model Christ. And in modeling Christ, we see a life that does not seek its own pleasures first, but seeks to serve others and give life for others. Then look at verse 15. It says, don't you realise that your bodies are part of Christ? And this is the root, I think, of Paul's desire that sexual sin in particular be ripped out of the church and got rid of. He says, when we join bodies with another person, we become one with them. And for Paul, our bodies are the temple of the Lord. If we use and abuse the temple of the Lord, it's going to bring problems if we treat the temple of the lord as something to be you know just used to satisfy our own desires we are using his temple for selfish reasons rather than selfless and serving ones physically jesus went into the temple and chased money lenders out because they were using the temple for selfish gain take that idea put it into our body our mind our heart our we are the temple of the lord and Paul says that sexual immorality affects the body more than any other sin. Now, I know in the last 33 years that sex as a concept has kind of evolved along and a 21st century idea would be that, you know, sex is just sex. It doesn't really affect us. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that it does. It does affect those involved and it's more than foolish to assume that it is, it is nothing. Paul wants the best for the unity of the church as a whole. And remember, as, as a single person, you're not an island. You're called to be part of the body, part of Christ, the temple of the Lord. And that's why these challenges are so, like, hard line. So how has 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 challenged you or taught you? Has anything been difficult? Have you disagreed with anything? As always, I'm always here to answer questions or to discuss stuff. I am not perfect. I might get things wrong. Have a good day.